0: recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at lead Lag report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the lead lag report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code podcast 30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections and bear markets. And now on to our lead lag live discussion hosted by Michael Gaant.
1: My name is Michael Gayad, publisher of the Lead Lag Report, and our special guest for the hour, Andreas uh, Steno-Larsen. So, uh, Andreas, I certainly appreciate the time here from you. You and I have interacted a little bit through DM, and I've seen some of your real vision, media appearance. But for those who are not familiar with your background, talk about what you've done, how you got involved in markets, and how do you tend to look at investing?
2: I started my career in investment banking, basically, and ended up as the global chief strategist of a northern European bank called Nordea. I, I left Nadea last year, and I'm now the executive at one of the largest real estate, private equity funds in Europe called Heimstad. So I know quite a bit about liquid markets, but now also alternative markets such as uh, real estate. Uh, And I've basically been following macro developments and and financial markets since I was 18 years old thereabout. So it's been quite a while now. So uh, we'll, we'll talk about a lot of different things, but I'm reminded
1: of one of the things that MacroAlf once said to me, and he put a tweet out about it, which I think most people probably intuitively know, but don't realize just how important it is, is that real estate really is the the biggest asset, right, of all the yeah. asset classes. I, I, and you said you're doing it from a private equity perspective. So maybe that's some uh, direction we can go in first. Let's talk about that market for those that are not familiar with private equity when it comes to real estate and talk about how real estate looks in Europe more broadly, because I can tell you here in the States, it's been a remarkable move over the last two years. But but I want you to kind of riff on that for, for a few moments here.
2: Well, well, first of all, uh, if we look at the European market, it sort of resembles the development that we've seen in in the US and in Canada, but to a less crazy extent over the past couple of years. But, but in the northern parts of Europe, we've seen uh, a rapid increase in, in residential house prices, basically as a consequence of the extreme lows that we've seen in, in inflation-adjusted interest rates. I, I tend to look at the real estate market as an inflation-adjusted long-term bond. And when the interest rate is low and inflation outpaces the interest rate, then it's a very benign scenario to buy real estate with debt, basically. Uh, and that's exactly what we've seen over the past two to three years post-COVID, that the financing condition simply became so benign that uh, regular people had the opportunity to pay up for, for real estate compared to the scenario we had in 2019 ahead of COVID. But now we're starting to see the first signs of financing costs increasing rapidly, in particular in the US, but also in Canada. We haven't seen the same pace in in the repricing of mortgages in Europe, but we're certainly getting there as well. So, of course, this is a story for real estate this year with financing costs being at uh, a different uh, place level-wise compared to 2021. It would almost be gullible to say that it shouldn't have a marginal price effect. So I think it will get into market prices over the coming four to six quarters, without a doubt.
1: One of the the things that's often referenced when it comes to residential property in the states is that there's been this kind of quasi crowding out of the individual homeowner and investor to the institutions like the Blackstones buying up a whole bunch of different properties and in some cases, you know, I've seen things on buying up whole neighborhoods essentially. How's the institutional space looking in Europe compared to? what you may be familiar with when it comes to the U S because I think there is this kind of concern that the U S is going to slowly become a renter nation as the big players with all the flush capital literally just take up your neighbor's property.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's very typical to, to own one's own home in Europe, also compared to the US, but there are large differences within Europe. Uh, so in Eastern Europe, we have about 90% and above home ownership for regular people, while it's closer to 60 to 70%. If we look at the Northwestern part of, of Europe. And I, I understand the view that we, we see some crowding out due to institutional investors entering this, this market in size and We basically see the same trend in in Europe as, as you, um, depict in the US that institutional investors find the running yield of buying and renting out quite attractive compared to, for example, bonds. So if you compare real estate to a bond investment, then I would still argue that real estate is, is the better choice of the two from an institutional perspective. So I think that's why we see this crowding out effect playing out over the, um, over the course of also the next. 10 years still. Yeah, it's, it's become
1: sort of more in the in the background of a lot of people's thinking that, uh, you know, if you have institutions coming in, they don't need to be forced sellers. So that keeps prices elevated simply because you don't have also the mark to market of kind of the forced uh, seller, which we can also think through uh, as well. All right. So I want to go through some of these bullet points that you sent me. A lot of the conversations I do here on Spaces are macro driven and tend to not get too, too granular. So I'll leave it to you as far as how detailed you want to get. But I'm curious your thoughts on what's going on with uh, this lockdown that we keep on seeing in media uh, happening in Shanghai, different parts of, of China. Just yesterday, I think it was right. The TSA said we're going to remove the masks. I mean, it seems like life is largely essentially back to normal everywhere except
2: China let's talk through your thoughts on that well i mean the pictures that we see from shanghai they look very grim i have to admit that and i haven't been there for a while quite obviously Uh, i'm not even sure i wanted to go there at the moment due to these uh, draconian measures being in place but to take a very uh, practical example of what's going on in in shanghai right now you can basically track the daily volume of passengers in the tube in shanghai and over the past 14 days roughly. We've seen zero passengers in the, in the tube in Shanghai, which basically means that it's closed. And so you're, you're, you're not allowed to leave home. I think that's safe to say even without having boots on the ground there. So it's a very bizarre scenario. And of course it comes with substantial repercussions in terms of the supply chain. We've talked about the supply chain globally over and over since March 2020, but i basically think that the mother of all supply chain issues is right in front of us as a consequence of shanghai being closed as a consequence of guangzhou being being closed in, in in china because those those two cities they are instrumental in the global supply if we look at the data that we get in every every day right now from from the shipping side it also looks worse and worse and worse for each day counting right now, we have I think a little bit more than three hundred and fifty container ships queuing up outside of Shanghai, which essentially means that they they are not allowed to enter and offload and in particular load again and and return to the u s and to Europe. So I think we should expect uh, a lot of supply scarcity in in the u s and in Europe with the time lag of maybe three to four weeks from now, which essentially means that a lot of the plastic shit that you buy in, in Walmart and elsewhere will simply be on in in a month or two from now. We're not talking about necessities to a large extent, but still the price of goods will have to increase as a consequence of what's going on in Shanghai. So we haven't seen the worst of inflation yet. That's my main message today. It almost sounds like it's like it's planned to some extent, I mean, in the sense
1: that I don't mean I don't mean that from a conspiracy standpoint, but rather that you know, China knows that it has the the bargaining power, right, as far as supply chains. And, you know, if you really want to get that into the popular narrative more and more that inflation is going to be higher and higher, well, we're going to suddenly shut down a certain manufacturing harbor. We're going to start making things stricter in terms of being able to get things out there. Talk talk through sort of the response here because it, it does seem a little bit unusual, for lack of a better way of saying it, that uh, this continues to happen, even though, again, Vaccines, you don't hear much about deaths in China, but they're acting as if
2: you're having mass casualties because of COVID will overcome. I I, I mean, if <laughs> let, let me try and don my tinfoil hat initially, I think the timing is highly suspicious on this lockdown in China, given that China has so far sort of refused. To meddle with the crisis in Ukraine. And this, could, of course, could be one way of sending a signal to the US indirectly on the Chinese stance on the Russian-Ukrainian crisis. Therefore, I think we need to take action in the West in response to this. And it will, of course, emphasize the deglobalization trend that already started. Maybe a couple of years ago you know, under the Trump reign, so I, I I basically suspect that a lot of executives will will start looking into withdrawing manufacturing capacity from the Asian region and taking it back, onshoring it in in the U.S. and in Europe. As a consequence of this, we haven't received a clearer signal in decades that it is costly to just allow China to be the factory of the world in particular in times of crisis. That was already the case during the first phase of COVID, but it's certainly the case again now with geopolitics playing an increasingly important role in the relationship between the US and China as a consequence of what's going on in Ukraine. So it's not really an optimistic scenario manufacturing rise and supply-wise for the next two, three, four quarters, since it takes time to, to move manufacturing back basically.
1: So I'm with you on the, all that. The The dilemma that I have is that could be even more inflationary if you have things shore So yes, there's the argument that you want to have more things within your borders and be less dependent upon somebody else having to export those goods to you. But you're doing that to begin with because there's a labor advantage in terms of that as a cost at production, right? So If you end up having this broader wave over the next several years of bringing those supply chains closer to home, well, then I'm pretty sure that labor costs are much, much higher in the US than in China, than in Europe, than in China. So that would actually make the case that you have real secular wage inflation still to come on that uh, de-globalization. So I want you to kind of think through that as a a thought experiment.
2: That's clearly the risk scenario for the next decade or two. That onshoring means that we will enter a rate spiral that we haven't seen since the seventies. I think there are a lot of secular forces dragging in the other direction. Uh, we can get back to 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 those, but I think the. Scenario in the middle of the park would be to look for a non-geographical location to exploit, so to speak. And one of my trend cases basically in macrospace is that the main sort of recipient of manufacturing flows now could be a country like India. They have a decent infrastructure, not as good as China, and they also have a decent wage level. So I think that's a country that executives will also be looking at when they decide on where to put the next factory so it could also be sort of regional onshore not just transatlantic onshore
1: yeah no that's that's a fair point okay you use the term the sort of rate spiral idea and it's just funny timing so i just had a conversation with an advisor and the advisor basically said well you know any kind of work that's been done on markets has been based on this secular falling rate environment over the last 45 years we now know that that's changed and i immediately pushed back saying no we don't know that that's changed there's an inherent assumption that rates are going to continue to rise and that's becoming the new narrative especially in the media without regard for the question of which rates because yeah. you could have the short end rise and the long end fall and then seemingly everyone forgot context that you can't really have rising rates if you have debt that exceeds everything else so let's talk through this this narrative around this kind of rate spiral, which arguably is what's happening for now, right, in the first four months of 2022. But how do you view sort of interest rates in the context of, again, debt and what I think are still very real longer term deflationary pressures?
2: I think one thing is very certain for the next decade, and that is that inflation will outpace nominal bond yields. There is no way around it since it is the only feasible scenario politically on how to handle the debt load that we see throughout the West. First of all, there is, of course, a running liquidity consequence of rising interest rates, both for the US Treasury and the Treasuries in Europe that are highly indebted. And secondly, there is also a mark-to-market issue for the central banks that own large portions of these bonds on their balance sheet. To take a very simple example, the Federal Reserve, they bought a lot of bonds, even truckloads of bonds through 2020 and 2021 at very low interest rate levels. And when we see this rate spiral that we see right now, the Federal Reserve will have to take a mark-to-market account in a negative direction on their balance sheet as a consequence of the bonds that they own. They are simply worth less now, given the rate spiral that we're in. And at some point, I guess that becomes a political issue for the Federal Reserve, but also for the U.S. Treasury. Since you cannot allow the Federal Reserve to sell bonds that are deeply in red territory, mark-to-market-wise, since it will ultimately lead uh, to a scenario where taxpayers will have to recapitalize the Federal Reserve. So I think the whole idea of doing very aggressive quantitative tightening, as the Federal Reserve has already floated the idea of, uh, simply becomes less and less and less attractive given what we see in interest rate space right now, because they will have to sell the bonds with a negative mark-to-market compared to when they bought them. And ultimately, that will lead the US Treasury up to recapitalize the Federal Reserve. So it comes with a truckload of political repercussions to allow interest rates to rise in this scenario, in particular, given how many bonds central banks have bought, but also given how indebted treasuries are around the West. Right. I think what's what also underappreciated is that it's also what could
1: lead to another credit downgrade. of of the U.S., like what we saw in 2011. And I floated that idea out middle of last year through the lead lag report. And obviously, I was not right, thinking that the behavior of markets back then was eerily reminiscent of the lead-up of the 2011 summer crash where S&P downgraded U.S. debt from AAA. But what are your thoughts on sort of this potential here that the credit rating agencies may have to step in if rates keep rising at this pace? Because I don't see how you can argue the U.S. is going to be creditworthy if you're not full-on MMT and if your interest rates are spiking while spending is not going down.
2: Yeah, and, and you're right, first of all, in that assumption. Uh, it's very tricky to time it. But given what we see in interest rate space, then there is, of course, a pressure on rating bureaus to to look into this case, also for the United States and when watching interest rates right now i simply think that there are no good options for policymakers since even the mmt proponents they struggle to find a good explanation on why you should accept to continue printing money to fund the deficit in a scenario where inflation prints markedly above target that is the only constraint in mmt remember that they basically tell you that the government can print forever as long as inflation is not skyrocketing uh, but inflation is skyrocketing right now so the only constraint in mt is actually constraining the decision makers right now which is an issue also for the mt proponents
1: yeah and i, I think the, the the thing that's obviously missed in that conversation is that you have to able you a know, tax to counter the inflation well yeah. not really much, much willingness to do that we'll be back after a quick break Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit Live and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the lead lag report. And now, back to our discussion.
2: By treasury, treasuries that are inflation protected, I still think that they can perform decently in this environment since I expect real rates to become even more negative than what we've already seen. That's the only way out of this mess, in my view. So from a nominal perspective, I mean, who wants to own... A nominal bond in this scenario. It's also been quite visible so far this year that no one wants that. And I think that trend is about to continue at least until we get what I will call clear demand destruction, which is the job of the Fed now to create demand destruction, because that's the only way to get supply and demand back in tandem. Because of course, the Fed cannot make the chinese stop the lockdown they cannot increase supply of container ships they cannot increase the supply of food etc so they will have to do something about demand side that's the only way out of this i mean of course they're linked to the official consumer price index and there are i think loads of fair criticism on the way that we measure inflation officially so in that sense i will have to agree with you if this is uh, meant as a protection against everyday inflation, then it's not a perfect protection. Clearly not.
1: Yeah, yeah no, no. that's good. Okay, so so we're talking about the demand side. Let's talk about the supply side here for for a moment. So um, there's this saying, which I think people forgot, that the cure to high price is high price in the commodity space. By the way, the cure to high yields is high yields, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I want you to talk through how you see this cycle when it comes to the supply side. There's a lot of concerns around food prices. Obviously, you can't suddenly turn around and, and double your crop overnight, right? But talk through, from your own studies, the cycles that happen when it comes to supplies in particular, you know, the need commodities, the things that we need every day, and how you end up having these situations where everyone's afraid of supply, and then suddenly everyone's afraid of the glut.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I tend to say that every supply scarcity scenario ultimately ends up in ends up in a supply glut and the reason is that i basically put my trust in capitalism to work here so as soon as it becomes benign enough from a return perspective to basically throw money at sectors that need new supply then capitalism will be put at work and actually solve it over the medium term but it takes time to increase supply while demand moves much much faster than uh, supply, but to give you a few examples, we've talked about the um, issues of of the supply chain in Shanghai, and the lack of ability for for ships to 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 enter the port and leave the port again. But if we look at the amount of orders that are being put in on new container ships right now, then it's increasing at a massive pace. So I think that's one early signal that the market is actually trying to solve this. But of course, you cannot build a container ship in a quarter. You cannot build it in two quarters. So it will take time before this supply actually reaches the, the the global markets. But that's one example. We've also seen a massive pickup in the amount of applications for new truck driving service companies in the US as a consequence of the shortage of truck drivers that we've seen since the vaccine mandates were, were rolled out basically. Uh, so I think there are early signs that the market will solve this over the medium term, but it's just not tradable in financial markets for now. Spot inflation will rise this quarter still. I think we have the worst yet to come. And therefore, you need to look at what's right in front of you from a trading perspective right now, not what's in front of you in five years' time.
1: All right. So that goes actually to the name of the space. Right, So is the stock market right or wrong? And it's always funny to me because the discussion around whether an investment thesis is right or wrong assumes that the endpoint is the correct endpoint. In other words, you can be yeah, you know, There are a lot of people that are, quote, unquote, wrong about the idea that real estate would cause a financial crisis in 06 you know, into 07, and then suddenly their are geniuses in 08. All right, so let's talk about how the stock market is perceiving inflation, because I'm not convinced that the stock market, the wisdom of the crowds, really is wise to how severe this could impact margins, impacts leverage scenarios where you have potential crash risks. Talk through that for a bit, because I think
2: this is sort of at the heart of what's on most investors' minds. I think for now, what we've seen in equity space is a repricing of all equities that are duration intensive. Uh, And by that, I mean equities with a projected cash flow rising far out in the distant future. Some examples of that being the ARKK ETF, including loads of of technology stocks. Uh, So that's one example of a very duration intensive Stock uh, or ETF, and we've seen a repricing of that sector. That, to me, tells that the market is at least looking at the interest rates and looking at the inflation outlook. But it is, of course, always the debate whether the far end of the inflation curve truly depicts the risk of a regime change or not. And and at least I can see that the far end of inflation expectations—let's let's take ten years uh, of inflation expectations or thirty years—those expectations are positively correlated to what's going on today, but with a very low beta. And by that I mean, if inflation picks up one percent today, the expectations ten years out they tend to pick up maybe 0.1 percentage points or 0.2 percentage points. So there is a focus on the spot development, but also. Sort of a saying that spot developments will not fully filter in to long-term developments in inflation, and I think that's why equity markets have sort of kept the uh, the skin on the nose so far. We are basically still within spitting distance of all-time highs in the S P 500, which I find almost remarkable given what we've seen in interest rate space and from the inflation side so far this year. So to come to the bottom line of this. I simply cannot envisage a positive scenario for risk assets the next two quarters. Why, why on earth do we want to be long risk assets when the Federal Reserve is telling you that they want to basically destroy the demand side as a consequence of what we see on the supply side? I, I, ca- I cannot see that as a positive scenario for risk assets. So for now, I'm leaning short
1: definitely. I, I will add that within spinning distance of all-time highs, yes, but it's being driven, you know, by utilities which is a small yeah. sector in the S&P, but has been unrelenting on, on outperformance, consumer staples, healthcare. If you look at the last – in particular, the last three three to five weeks or so, you've seen some real relative strength in the defensive sectors of the stock market. Now, that's unusual, and it, goes, it kind of goes back to this year being such a, a shit show from, from a lot of perspectives. Usually, defensive sectors like utility, staples, healthcare, they outperform when yields are falling. Right, because the idea is that now dividends, you know, have to kind of adjust on a relative basis to where treasuries are. Treasuries are a defensive asset; those are sectors with less than uh, beta of less than one. They tend to be more defensive by nature, so they tend to correlate. Treasury strength means outperformance of, in particular, utilities, staples, healthcare. You haven't had that this year. Right? You've had a tremendous divergence where yields have been spiking, yet defensive sectors are show, showing strength now for my world that would be a massive massive red flag that we're still going to probably see some broader risk off. This happened in 2011 too. 2011 you had utility staples healthcare lead for some period of time before the summer crash of 2011. Talk us through a little bit here Andreas the role of sectors when you look at the macro landscape if you believe certain sectors as I do for example show you the whites of the eyes of regime change or if it's more just randomness and noise.
2: To me the reason why we've seen that sector rotation that you just went through is the nature of the inflation that we see right now, because it's mostly driven, if not solely driven, at least in Europe, by a rise in the price of necessities. So energy and food to an extent that we haven't seen in decades. Uh, And therefore, consumer staples and energy-related stocks, they tend to perform in this kind of scenario. So I am all in the camp of continuing to belong, stuff that people need, consumer staples being the most obvious choice here. Because, I mean, if you are struggling on budget as a household, you will, of course, move your consumption towards what you need. And that's an issue in particular for consumer discretionary stocks. So my best bet from a sector perspective is to be long stuff that people need and short stuff that people don't need. Long staples versus discretionary consumer stocks. Yeah, it's funny because that that very statement goes
1: directly to my point that when the market itself is acting like need is where all the momentum is, well, you don't need stocks. And that's probably why stocks are (laughs) end up going down with a
2: delay, which is just kind of a a funny way of framing it. I, I, I actually think that the true source of liquidity is central banks. So what I will be watching very closely now is the balance sheet development from the Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank for that matter, since they are both planning on bringing down the overall amount of true excess reserves in the financial system, both in Europe and in the US. That's The whole point of doing so-called quantitative tightening, that you want to bring down the amount of liquidity that's that's being pushed into financial markets, because that's essentially what happens when a central bank enacts in QE. They create new liquidity for financial markets, not for the real economy. The liquidity that is created in purchase programs cannot leave financial assets, in my view. It's impossible. It's simply due to the nature of, of how reserves are constructed. So therefore... This is the ultimate harbinger of liquidity for the next couple of quarters. If the Fed starts QT, what you usually see is that it drags investors inwards off the, on the risk curve. So basically, when the Federal Reserve leaves space to be filled in treasury space, for example, an investor simply has to sell something further out the risk curve to fill up that empty space. So very simply speaking, the investors will slowly but surely draw down on their risk profile as a consequence of the Fed leaving a portion of the inner part of the risk curve open for grabs. Uh, and I think that that's essentially very mechanically what will happen over the next couple of quarters. Let's talk about a little more on the
1: European side, Andreas. So I've, I've had, uh, had Etienne demarsac I'm mm-hmm. going to have him back on, I think, back in January. And this is before Russia went into Ukraine. And we were talking about European financials. At the time, it looked like they were going to finally have a breakout. They were showing real momentum. War starts and then that just completely doesn't about face. Talk through to the audience how you're seeing the macro landscape in Europe now and in particular the health of the banking system. Because I have to tell you, I was really hyped about the potential here that the biggest driver of, of risk sentiment may end up being from investors going to European banks because they've been they've done nothing for so long. Right. And again, it just ends up being another false signal of momentum. But but talk through how you're viewing European
2: financial institutions here. First of all, it's quite interesting to see the disconnect that we've seen between long bond deals and banking stocks, because usually they trade in tandem, but we haven't seen that over the past months here. I think as a consequence of, of the geopolitical mess that we are currently stuck in in Europe. First of all, I think it's a done deal that we get a recession in Europe, basically now. I think we're in the, in the middle of it already, but we just have, don't have the data yet. And the reason being that we went from using around 3.5% of the GDP in Europe on energy in 2020 to now roughly entering double-digit territory of GDP just on the energy bill. And large countries in Europe, Germany as the biggest example, they have no local production of energy. And it's been fading like crazy over the past decade because we basically trusted Russia on this. It's been a massive mistake. From a geopolitical standpoint and i simply don't understand that that are not, that people don't point fingers at angela merkel more than what they do for those decisions taken since 2010 basically so we we need a long structural trend to reverse in europe on the energy front before we get back into a better structural growth outlook for for core countries such as such as germany uh, and there you have the exact explanation why Financial institutions they don't perform on the equity market in in Europe, both as a consequence of of the very negative growth outlook, but also as a consequence of the indirect exposures that they have to Eastern European countries with large trade patterns with Russia and also directly with Russia. You you can find a couple of institutions heavily linked to Russia among the uh, big European financial institutions. I, I think it matters for the Fed the spread between corporate bonds and and the U.S. Treasury curve. We've seen how they've reacted to widespread increases in in corporate bond spreads over the uh, past decade. Uh, So it it is probably one of the signals that they are actively following in in, in order to correctly adjust the balance sheet policy to the scenario that we're looking into. So I actually think that if credit spreads, they start moving rapidly up, then the Federal Reserve will react to that. Uh, But if we get the opposite scenario where we get spread tightening while the overall base of the yield curve continues to increase, then they will allow that to continue. It wouldn't be a red flag for them. Let's continue with the Europe
1: theme for for a moment here, because again, we don't have too many people talking explicitly about Europe for a good amount of the hour here. But aside from banks, um, Assuming Europe is in a recession, which a lot of people are of that opinion, every recession always has its winners afterwards, right? There's always a shopping list for whenever that recession ends. While it's still very early, I'm curious, Andres, your your thoughts on where might there be some opportunities for those that want to look at Europe once we're kind of past that period? Because from a U.S. perspective, it's been not a fun experience for the last decade to try to diversify internationally.
2: I think, first of all, we need to take account uh, of the rapid move that we've seen politically towards trying to make Europe independent of uh, Russian energy resources. So the equities in Europe that are linked to fighting climate change, I think they will get a massive revival once we are on the other side of, of the recession. And frankly speaking, those stocks, they also tend to have a very firm duration profile so it basically means that they tend to sell off when interest rates go up so you you get you will even get the chance of buying them fairly cheap as a consequence of the move we've seen in interest rate space and i think uh, we are about to enter a an almost extreme structural trend over the next decade of of europe trying to make everything green in terms of the energy production Uh, and it will be backed up by truckloads of money from the European Union, and also from the local administrations in most of the European countries. So this is exactly the place where authorities will place their chips. So why don't you place your chips there as well? I've had a lot of um, prior speakers talk about
1: nuclear within that framework, yeah. right? And that, you know, again, Germany, you know, clearly, I think that even they would have made the mistake in trying to get rid of nuclear plants, they probably should have been doing quite the opposite. But I'm curious, I don't know how closely you've studied the sector, but I'm curious your thoughts on nuclear as one way to not only play the European shift towards green, because it's hard to talk about green without nuclear, but even outside of you're sort of the, the case for that type of an energy source versus what we're seeing, which is all this momentum in traditional oil and gas type type plays.
2: I, I'm heavily invested in, uh, in a uranium ETF myself, so I have to disclaim that. So I think that's one perfect way to exploit this new trend from an investment perspective. First of all, it took, I think, four weeks, maybe even only three weeks from the uh, issue with natural gas being a scarce resource or at least a pricey resource in the European Union until the European Commission accepted to label nuclear as green. Prior to the crisis here, it wasn't labeled as a green energy resource. So that's a Massive game changer from a political perspective, and also a game changer for the investment pace in the sector. So I think it is very noteworthy what has happened politically in terms of of looking at nuclear as a green option for the uh, coming decades. And uh, you at least have the very clear backing of the French administration for this trade. Whether you will get the backing of the German administration is more debatable, since it is, of course, very, very tricky to make such a big U-turn on an energy resource that you basically discarded 10 years ago on a structural level. But I think ultimately, they will be guided there by market pricing of other available resources. So also, ultimately, Germany will back up this trade. So I like it a lot. Okay. So there's all that would argue that there's still another very
1: big debt binge to come, right? In other words, and I've I've been making this case in some of the Writings that I put out there that you have this dynamic where countries want to have more resources, you know, and more control of the supply chain within their borders. Okay, well, that's going to require a hell of a lot of capital. You yourself just alluded to the idea that Europe's going to do this, you know, ongoing, continued green massive push, and they're going to throw a tonny a ton of money at it. You know, Europe is just is more in debt than we are. Talk through sort of that the way that might play out because all this sounds good and i often hear a lot of people talk about these longer term plans and how you know it takes time for these things to take place but the starting point of having so much leverage to me makes it either very hard to do or makes it makes it
2: something that could be actually quite damaging to uh, the cost of capital i think what will very practically speaking happen here is that the northern European part of of the European Union will have to back up new debt issued by the European Union to solve this issue. So I perfectly agree with you that parts of Europe have a bigger issue in terms of sovereign debt than the US, but you also have parts of Europe with a much, much smaller debt load in in terms of sovereign debt compared to the US. Germany being one clear example, France is another example. And then we have all the Scandinavian countries also with a a massive potential to increase that if needed. So this will bring about a big move towards the European Union issuing bonds to a much larger extent than what is already planned, common bonds backed up by the strongest parts of the union to fund this transition towards green energy. So I actually don't think that it's a huge issue, at least for, not for the coming decade, because there are at least parts of Europe where the, the taxpayers can take, off, take on a bigger deadlock.
3: We'll be back after a quick break.
1: Right. But to your point, that's going to take quite a long time. It kind of goes back to the point that it's hard to imagine any central bank getting out of the business fully of buying up sovereign debt through the QE mechanism because – there's so much more still to come. So, and who else is going to buy? You know, to keep those rates relatively low. I think it's kind of a
2: an interesting question. Yeah, uh, and I mean, we should remember that the European Central Bank is still buying. That's kind of crazy, right? Given that we have plus seven and a half percent inflation in the eurozone. I mean, if if you would have told the German ten years ago that the European Central Bank would be buying German debt while German inflation was running above 7.5%, then they would have asked you to off, basically. I mean, it would have been a crazy scenario to imagine. But right now, and I know that they're trying to plan their exit from this, but uh, I mean, usually what we've seen when the European Central Bank has planned its exit from a uh, purchase program, they run into very practical obstacles on the spread between Southern European debt and Northern European debt. And essentially, we are yet to face that test that phase of the test in the sort of sequencing of the exit from very loose monetary policy in the European Central Bank in this cycle. So I'm not even sure that they've passed that test yes, yet. And I'm not optimistic that they will be able to pass it. Either.
1: Right. So you were talking about the return of the pigs, so to speak, yeah. as far as a crisis area. So let, let, let's Let's talk about that because I think it's good to get a, give a little historical perspective around the crisis in 2011. Everyone getting concerned about whether the EU would even survive, if the euro would survive. To this uh, idea that the ECB can ever get out of QE, because to your point, you know this kind of goes back to Draghi's infamous, you know, whatever it takes when it comes mm-hmm. to the euro. You can't really get out of the business of bond buying from the ECB because that goes back to true that those spreads, which creates a whole another. Systemic event for the region. So, in your opinion, in your analysis, do you think there's ever really a scenario where the ECB can stop subsidizing? Only
2: in the very uh, extreme case where all European debt will be sort of centralised under the same issuer and name, and I guess that. Well, so, so talk, through,
1: talk through that to the audience. Explain, explain what that means. I think that's a. It's something that, again. When you're sitting in the U.S., you naturally assume that most things work the way the U.S. works.
2: But, but but talk through that. Yeah, well, they certainly don't, at least for now. So all sovereigns within the European Union they issue debt themselves, and that's why you have this issue of extreme differences in the credit quality between, for example, Italian and Spanish bonds, and then the core of the European Union in in France and, and Germany. And you could even argue that that the credit quality of the french sovereign bonds is 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 kind of debatable so that's the whole issue when it comes to the european central bank leaving the qe program since some of the issuers within the european union they struggle to get good market prices if they are left on their own and that's what we've seen several times over the course of the qe program from the from the european central bank interestingly we've seen a move i would say since covid towards Common debt being issued by the European Union. So I think it takes a crisis to to get such mechanisms in in place. And the COVID crisis was one clear opportunity for the European Union to move to move towards a more common fiscal setup. And I think we've taken important steps in that direction. The big question here is whether populations in the European Union in the various sovereigns will accept moving fully towards a fiscal union, because that's essentially what's to get rid of this issue of uh, Spanish and Italian bonds selling off every time the European Central Bank tries to normalize policy. We have momentum towards that fiscal union right now and common debt being issued in size, but it ultimately takes, I would say, a cultural convergency between the Southern and Northern European part also on how to Structure the fiscal budget every year before it is really feasible to think of a full fiscal union. Because ultimately, you're not going to get German taxpayers to pay for very lax rules on fiscal spending in Southern Europe. I don't think that's feasible over time unless you have very strict and common rules across the union.
1: All right. So I want to go back to what you had said before that you know I think you mentioned your your bias here is to be short equities, and I always have kind of. Issues with shorting, because I always liken it to knowing the exact mile marker that you might crash your car, whereas at least historically, certainly not this year, treasuries are a, let's call them, quote unquote, safer way of playing the anti-beta bet rather than doing an outright short position. Where do you see vulnerabilities highest now in the equity space, are you viewing shorting more like long short against so you're balancing it where you're trying to bet on something that goes down faster, or are you making an outright directional bet? And if so, if it's directional,
2: what's, what concerns you the most as far as what could go down the fastest? The latest trade that I've put on in my personal portfolio is along the iShares Global Consumer Staple ETF versus shorting the iShares Global Consumer Discretionary ETF. So that's a spread trade, basically betting on the staples performing relatively to the discretionary segment of of the consumer stocks. And the reason for that trade is, once again, that I think that it is a good idea to be long necessities and short stuff that people don't need over the coming quarters as a consequence of this mother of all supply chain issues that we are currently faced with due to the lockdown in china so that's the rationale the rationale behind that trade from an index level i basically prefer not to be short at any time basically i think it's very tricky to be that it's also very tricky to be sort of continuously short bonds as a consequence of the carry that you have against you as so I would probably prefer not to be that in a portfolio construction as a consequence of the costs that it bears on a running basis. So I rather prefer to play this in relative bets, such as one sector being long one sector and being short another. And you should also note that under the surface of con- the consumer discretionary ETF, you also have tech related stocks such as Tesla. Tesla is, as far as I remember, the biggest position in this discretionary ETF that I've bought, sorry, that I've sold. So there is a, an element of buying the old economy versus shorting the new economy in this trade as well. And I'm curious then at what
1: point would you consider bonds a buy? Maybe I should clarify that that yeah. when I'm talking about bonds I'm really talking about treasuries, right? Um, mm-hmm. At what point is the risk-free rate does it have enough return that it makes it worth it
2: to take a punt on something that's longer duration on the uh, on the government liability side? What I usually do when I uh, look at the bond market and whether to go long or not is to look at the Far end of the yield curve versus measures of the of the equilibrium rate in the economy, and by the equilibrium rate I mean the so-called neutral rate at which the economy doesn't overheat or slow down markedly. It's of course a running debate the exact level of that neutral rate, but I think most people accept that it is within plus minus fifty basis points of two percent in nominal terms. So to me that means that when when we get substantially above 2.5% in the far end of the yield curve. We're getting there. Then it becomes incre- increasingly attractive to try and go long treasuries as a tactical trade. To get a very firm signal in my bond model, then we would probably need to reach 3.5% roughly in the 10-year treasury before it's a firm buy signal. So we are within, not spinning distance, but within reachable territory of of a, of a yield level that I could accept going long from now.
1: There- that reminds me a bit of the the conversation that was just referenced about the advisor I spoke with not too long ago, uh, who said, "Yeah, it's hard to buy something that's up thirty percent." refuse to consider buying Treasuries because they're down a pretty big number, right? And people always have problems with extremes, even though most money is made at the extremes, which I think is just yeah. an interesting thing to kind of uh, tease out. So, let's everybody that's joined for the hour, please make sure you follow uh, Andreas Arsene here. Thank you, Andreas, and everybody. Enjoy the rest of your day.
3: or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Leadlag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code Podcast 30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award winning research and anticipate stock market crashes. Corrections and bear markets.